end this morning as we talk about worldliness versus godliness. Now here James is warning his readers concerning the dangers of worldliness. And in the text we're going to see two truths concerning the dangers of worldliness this morning. Now before we jump into the text, let me kind of give you this little caveat before we get too far into the text. And, and, and guilt is overwhelming us. I want all of us to understand that James is writing to the church. James is writing to believers. James is writing to people just like us that are struggling with worldliness versus godliness. All of us understand what it means to be godly. We'll talk about that and spell that out even more completely this morning. We have a desire to live our lives for the glory of God. However, we are still alive and well in this world. We still are in this body of flesh, as Paul calls it. And because of that, there is a constant struggle. Paul will call it a constant war that rages on inside of us. Whereas we will see this morning from Romans 7, Paul will say the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And so all of us this morning are living in that battle. We're living in that war. And the fact that you're struggling to live for the glory of God is a good thing. That means that you're trying to live your life for the glory of God. Amen? If you weren't struggling, that's where I would be concerned. Because if you're not struggling, it's not because you're living perfectly before the Lord. If you're not struggling with that reality, it's because you're not really concerned about living for the Lord. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. This idea of worldliness versus godliness. Now, one of the things we're going to see within the book of James, one of the things we have seen is that James is a practical preacher and teacher of the word. He gives us practical advice for daily life. And James also deals with themes that sort of repeat and kind of run together. And we're going to see that again this morning. So James chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 1. We'll read through verse 10. We'll pray. Then we'll jump into the text this morning. So James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I want to pause and just remind you, he's writing to the church. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Again, he's writing to the church. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that addresses the struggles that we face in this life as we try to live our lives for your glory. 
Lord, thank you for the book of James. Thank you for the practical input, the practical commands that you give us through James. And thank you, Lord, for the impact that it's able to have in our day-to-day lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, convicted where we need conviction. And Lord, at the end of this day, that you would be glorified as you work in us and through us this morning. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We surrender ourselves fully unto you. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in the text again, we're going to see two truths concerning the dangers of worldliness. Number one this morning, friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God. Let me say that again. Friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God. Now, as we get to chapter four, I want to remind you that chapter and verses, those numbers you see in your Bible, all of those were added later by editors to help us navigate the Bible. It's a whole lot easier, in other words, for me to say, open your Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 1, instead of me saying, open your Bible to the book of James, where he begins to talk about worldliness. Right? That's harder for us to find. And so editors did us a favor by adding these verses and adding these chapter divisions. However, sometimes... It gives us the impression that the, the, the thought has changed. When in instances like this, it's clear to see that these chapters flow together quite naturally. And what James just told us at the end of chapter 3 is actually what propels him into chapter 4. Now what we just talked about last Sunday was the idea of wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. In other words, godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And that wisdom is what James is now addressing further this morning in application. And what he's saying is this, if you are following the wisdom of this world, then you are therefore a friend of the world and that makes you an enemy of God. So if your wisdom that you're trying to live by and apply is of the world, then you are going to find yourself in opposition to God on a regular basis. And that's where James comes from when he begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 by asking this simple question. What causes quarrels or what causes disagreements? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Now, if you are living in the wisdom of this world then those passions that are at war within you are those sinful, selfish desires that cause you to want and to do things that are opposed to God's will for your lives. Now, even if you're a believer this morning, you still have those passions in your life, right? Like those things don't go away just because you've trusted Christ. And so men, because you've come to faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that you can stop guarding your eyes. Amen? We still have to walk around with blinders on almost like a horse so that we can keep our eyes away from those things that entice us. If you're, if you're a man, you can't help that. You've got to keep those things up. Just because you love Christ doesn't mean you can let your guard down. Amen? Amen? It's just reality. And ladies, the same is true for you. And so all of these things that we experience as these passions, these are things that still exist within us that we have to do our best to overcome. But what James says is that these fights, these quarrels, these disagreements, these arguments, they come from those sinful, selfish passions that lead us away from the things of God. 
As a matter of fact, James says this is the wisdom of the world. It is the world. It is the devil that tells you to pursue those things. It's the world that says go after those things. It's the world. It's the devil that says go after those things. The world says to eat, drink, and be merry. To live your best life. To do what makes you happy. All of those are sayings that we hear that capture the thinking of the world. The problem is when you put two people together in any kind of a relationship who are both trying to do what makes them happy, it is guaranteed to cause conflict at some point we will not always have passions that mesh together let me give you an example you leave here after church you and your wife you and a friend say hey let's go get lunch where are you going to eat for lunch today well one feels like mexican the other feels like a steak right how do you mesh those two things together well one's going to have to compromise Right? One's going to have to compromise, most likely. That's silly, but we've been in the room, we've been in the car, when, when more than one people aren't willing to compromise on something as simple as, where do you want to eat? Right? I've been in a car before trying to figure that out, and my desire at that point was to just get out of the car. Right? I didn't care any longer. I wasn't hungry. I just want to go home now, because this has gotten more complicated and ugly than it needs to get. Right? And I've actually said that as a parent before, as we're trying to decide as a family where we want to eat, and I can't get anybody to agree. I've said, let's either eat here or go home. Those are your two choices now, right? Because it can get frustrating. And listen, the more people you add, the more complicated it gets, and the more serious the discussion, the uglier it can get. James is writing to a church filled with people. And James is saying, where do these fights and quarrels and disagreements come from among you? They come from your sinful passions. They come from the selfish desires of your heart that you're not willing to lay down and compromise compromise for one another. That's where all this disagreement is coming from. And what James wants them to understand is that regardless of the relationship, marriage, family, friends, school, work, church, if we're driven by our sinful passions, then those relationships will be affected. We will fight, we will quarrel, we will argue, and sometimes it will get uglier. Notice verse 2. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now, hopefully, James is exaggerating for effect here. In other words, hopefully, James isn't talking about actual murders that had taken place within the church family. Right? If that was the case, I would assume James would address that chapter 1, verse 1. Right? Like, I'm being serious. Like, if you've got a list of issues in the church that need to be addressed, and, and there's been murder within the church, I feel like that would have come up way earlier in this letter. Amen? So most likely, James is using what we call a hyperbole, where he's exaggerating for effect, exaggerating to try to get his point across. And what James is saying is that you're, you're fighting, you covet, you want stuff, you want your way, you want your selfish passions, you can't have them. And so then you start hating one another. One of James's greatest influence in writing the book of James is the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. And what James is saying is what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount. You may not have ever actually murdered someone, but if you've looked at your brother with hate in your eyes, you've committed murder how many church relationships have gone south 
And church members literally despise and hate one another over something that when you break it down becomes really simple and silly. But it's because one or both would not give. They wanted their way. They coveted, but they couldn't get it. And so now they hate one another. It's sad, but it's happened in every church that's ever existed as long as this existed for longer than about a week. Amen? I remember talking to Corey Ickes after he had went to Vermont to plant or help plant Rivertown Church. And it was about eight months into the plant. He came back for, I think, Christmas or Thanksgiving or some point like that. And so anyway, we're doing what we do. Our friendship is based around hunting season. And so if it's hunting season, we're good friends. If it's not, then yeah, we'll see you next hunting season. So it was hunting season. So we were in the swamp together hanging out. And uh, we were talking about the church, talking about church plant, talking about Rivertown. And I'll never forget, he said... Man, here's what we've learned so far. It didn't take long for tradition to set in to a church plant. And what's interesting is that this tradition came up out of nowhere because this is a non-churched area. These people don't have background. They don't have church background. None of them can say, well, this is how we did it when I was a kid. They weren't in church when they were kids. He said, but in eight months, now all of a sudden we got tradition that we're fighting against. And we've got people that are upset because we're not doing things the way we did Eight months ago, he said, I, I wasn't prepared for how quickly that came. And, and that's the reality of what takes place oftentimes in the church. So again, hopefully there's not actual murders going on. Hopefully there are not fistfights breaking out in business meetings, although I've heard of stories before, right? Hopefully that's not what's going on. But what James wants his audience to understand, the reason he exaggerates for effects, he wants them to know there's real danger here. There's real danger here. Division can creep into the church and can absolutely still kill and destroy the church, which is what the enemy wants. Real division can creep into your marriage. Real division can creep into your friendships. Real division can creep into any relationship you have. And if we are not careful, those relationships will be murdered. They will die. James says, we have to be careful that our sinful passions and desires don't lead us into these conflicts when all in all, we ought to be able to surrender our will to the Lord instead of being led by our own sinful passions. James says, here's one of the main problems. You need stuff. You want stuff. Verse three, he says, but you do, or verse two, he says, but you do not have because you do not ask. How many problems could be resolved if instead of trying to go after what we want, we stopped for five seconds, got on our knees and said, God, what do I actually need? Lord, give me what you want me to have. James says you don't have because you don't ask. In other words, you're not praying. He says, and then when you do pray, you do ask. You, you ask, I love the old New King James translation, you ask amiss. You ask wrongly, in other words. You ask for something that wasn't a part of God's plan for your life. I love the, I love the idea of asking amiss. I, I've done sports and, and, and hunting my whole life. I understand what it, what it means to, to shoot at a basket and miss, right? To, to, to shoot at a target and miss. I love that idea that I am praying to God and my prayers are missing the basket, right? They're missing, they're missing the target because I'm not praying in accordance to his will. James says, the reason you 
don't have is because you're not asking. And when you do ask, you're asking for the wrong things. He says your, your, your passions are driving you away from God. And the reality is oftentimes the problem is that we're not passionate about the things of God. Instead, we're passionate about the things of the world. So James says in verse 4, you adulterous people. Again, he's writing to the church. He says you're being unfaithful to the God you serve. You're being unfaithful to the God who loves you, who died for you, and brought you into his family. And then he says what we need to fully understand this morning in verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Verse 4, that word friendship, it means more than just a casual friendship. It means an intimate friendship. Think, Think best friend. In other words, it's a friendship where, where the friendship affects the way we act and the way we think. Right, you remember when, when, when you were a kid and, and your mom or your dad, your grandparents would say, be careful who you hang out with. Because when you hang out with this person or this group, you begin to act like them. Right? It, it's that kind of a friendship. It's an intimate friendship that affects the way we act, affects the way we think. And what James says is this, you need to understand this clearly. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. These two are contrary to one another, right? And and if you're focused too much on being a friend of this world, then your relationship with God will turn south. You will become an enemy of God. Why? Because verse 5 tells us clearly that God is a jealous God. Now, the translation of verse 5 is difficult to bring into English, but it carries with it this idea in verse 5. If you look, it says, Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? The spirit that he made to dwell in us is likely the spirit of life. In other words, God created us in order to have a relationship with us. And God's not willing to share us with anyone or anything else. God's not willing to share our affections. God expects our affections to be for him and to him alone. It's very similar, which is why he uses the term adulterous. It's really similar to the marital relationship. I'm not going to share my wife, and my wife's not going to share my affections with anyone else. Amen? That's going to be a big problem. And one of us is going to yearn jealously. Right? The problem with my jealousy is my jealousy always has just a tent, if not a whole lot, of insecurity and selfishness behind it. One of my favorite stories that is just a great moment of my sinful past, Carrie and I were dating. And she had had a, a, like a brief boyfriend before me, and she was at home. She had been in a car accident. Well, actually, she got hit by a car, so not really a car accident with another car. She was crossing the road, got hit by a car. So anyway, she was at home. She's obviously fine and beautiful, and everything's good now. But during that time, she was at home, and her mom and dad had left, and I was there hanging out with her. And her old boyfriend came to the house to see her, even though he drove past her mom and dad on the way out of their mile-long dirt driveway. So he knew she was home by herself, and he comes anyway. Well, needless to say, 
I'm infuriated at this point, right? So he knocks on the door, and she doesn't get to answer the door. I answer the door. Really aggressively, I answer the door as I make my way into this guy's face real quick. Thankfully, there was stairs, so I was bigger than him because I was on stairs, right? That's like always helpful for me to get up in somebody's face, but there's like three or four steps for me to stand on. That's kind of how this was going. So he had a flower and had a bear, and so... I take the flower and I, you know, go away. I throw the flower in the trash can. And then all of a sudden, Carrie just hears what sounds like little raindrops all over the kitchen floor. <laughs> Turns out those beanie baby things, they actually got beads inside of them. So when you rip the head off a bear, all those things come falling out, right? And that's, that's kind of what happened. And so then in humility, I'm sweeping up all these thousands of beads that have hit the floor. Listen, I'll be honest with you. That jealousy that I experienced was really selfishness and insecurity on my part, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't concerned at that moment with her best. It was concerned with me protecting what I thought was mine. Right now, by God's grace, she was mine and, and, and that didn't ruin it. She actually thought that was hilarious and still kind of makes fun of me today for it. But that's OK. Right. The great thing is this. God's jealousy is righteous jealousy. It doesn't come from insecurity on his part because he knows there's none better than him. And it doesn't come based upon selfishness because he wants what's best for us. As a matter of fact, he proved that on the cross. Remember that God loved us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us by sending his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for sinners like you and I so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have a right relationship with God. That's what God desires for us. And so when it says that he yearns jealously over us, it's not because he's afraid of losing us. It's because he wants what is best for us. Amen. Matter of fact, he shows us a beautiful picture of that in verse 6, which brings us to our next point. So friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God. And then secondly, friendship with God results from humility and leads to grace. Let me say that again. Friendship with God results from humility and it leads to grace. Now look with me at verse 6. One of the, the most comforting verses in all of scripture. It begins, he gives more grace. In other words, in spite of all of our sin and proneness towards worldliness, he, God, gives more grace. The phrase speaks to God's great grace that is freely giving to us it means that his grace will never run out and his grace is always more than sufficient amen you're not as excited about that as you ought to be uh, listen let me tell you that means that when you go home today later this day and you find yourself sinning against god sinning against someone in your family because you've been selfish and that relationship's being affected when you confess it he gives more grace he forgives you he cleanses you he gives you the grace that you need. And his grace never runs out. His grace is always sufficient. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm alone. Maybe I'm the only one that feels like a scumbag from time to time because I've fallen flat on my face yet again. And I'm reminded that he gives more grace. He gives more grace. So that when I fall again the next day, he gives more grace. And he continues to give us the grace that we need. 
because he's already paid the price for our sin. He gives more grace. Who does he give the grace to? Notice verse 6. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, God says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This means that God sets himself against the proud, those who claim no need for God and those who refuse to acknowledge their sin before God. I want you to notice two groups of people there in the proud. One, those who claim they have no need for God. These are those who either don't believe God exists or don't care that God exists. Think atheist, think agnostic. In other words, these are people that either deny the existence of God or they say, you know what, God may exist, but I don't care. He didn't have anything to do with me, I don't have anything to do with him. Not worried about it, right? The other proud are those who refuse to acknowledge their sin or their need before God. Think Pharisees. They say, we're good. I'm a good person. Yeah, I believe that there's a God, but I I don't mean God's good with me. I've lived a good life. I I don't have anything to confess before the Lord. I'm, I'm fine, right? Those are the proud. God literally sets himself against the proud. Now, when my kids were younger, this illustration worked. Now it doesn't work as much. But it used to be that when when my kids were younger, I could stand like this and I could challenge my children to push me. And, And as they tried to push against me, they had no hope of moving me, right? That's the idea of God resists the proud. You're coming against God, trying to have your will in your way, and God is standing there. You're not gonna move him, right? Now Noah could push me all over the room, so we won't even try to demonstrate that anymore, right? But at a point, I I could resist him and he couldn't move. That's the picture. God resists the proud, but God helps and gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who acknowledge their need for God and their dependency upon God. The humble are those who look at God, who look at the standard of righteousness, look at themselves and go, I am in big trouble. And they cry out to God for grace. They cry out to God for help. And they surrender themselves to God because he alone is God. And the Bible says that God gives them grace. Matter of fact, it says he gives more grace. So what must we then do as the humble, as we come before the Lord, acknowledging our sin, our need for grace? What should we do in response to his grace? We'll look at the seven different commands or the six different commands that we see in the text following in verses 7 through 10. First of all, notice that James says we should submit to the authority of God in our lives. Look at what it says in verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. What does that mean? It means that I'm going to come to the place in my life where I'm going to submit to God as the authority in my life. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that I would become a living sacrifice, which gives us this beautiful picture that I am now dead to self, no longer living for me. And instead, I am living my life for Christ. It's been just inevitable through this process of of our family surrendering to the mission field. We have had countless people ask us this question, are you sure this is what you want to do? I've I've had this asked from family members who love us, from neighbors who love us, from church members who love us. Are you sure this is what you want to do? And I'll be completely honest with you. The answer is no. This isn't actually what we want to do. 
But God didn't ask for our opinion. And we didn't get a vote. If you ask me, are you sure this is what God wants you to do? Yes, we've prayed. The Lord has confirmed it again and again and again. We are sure and still are praying, God, shut the door if you don't want this to happen. Right? And and all of us sort of have fingers crossed that the Lord might shut the door somehow. Because again, this isn't necessarily what we want to happen. This is what God has led us to do. And therefore, we feel like we have no choice in the matter. Because we've submitted to the authority of God in our lives. By the way, that's why we're here. Is because we submitted to the authority of God in our life a long time ago as well. And when God led us to come to Corinth, that's why we came. We didn't come because we liked the area, although we do. We didn't come because we liked the church, although we actually do. We love you guys, believe it or not. (laughs) Which is why we don't really want to leave. But we don't live near our family. We, we don't live down the dirt path that, her, that Carrie grew up in, that her brothers and sisters grew up on. We don't live down the dirt path where we got free land waiting on us if we want it. We don't, we, don't, we don't live there because this is where God has led us. And we've never felt like we had a choice in the matter. It was always God that was leading. And so we're submitted to the Lord. And I'm not saying that to say, look at us, we're great. No, I've already admitted, I fall on my face and need more grace all the time, amen? But that's what it means to submit to God as the authority of your life. It's to say, God, I've died to self. It's not about what I want anymore. It's about what you want. And so, Lord, whatever you lead, whatever you say, whatever your word says, I will follow you because you are the authority of my life. I've also got to admit that I'm not great at that either. Which is what we're going to get to in a minute when we get to the fourth one. But secondly, Paul says not only, or James says that we're to submit to God. But he also says, notice, he says that we're to resist the devil. As believers, we've been set free from slavery to sin. Therefore, we have the ability to overcome temptation, to overcome the devil through Christ. And what Paul says is that we have to resist him. Right? James says, resist him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's what Paul and James say collectively. Resist the devil, resist the temptation, and it will go away from you. Why? Because God's faithful and his word promises Amen? And that's all the reason we need. Oftentimes, we fall into sin because we never resisted to begin with. The temptation presented itself, and we, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, said, oh, that looks good. And we just bit. And James says, you're no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to follow after sin any longer. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we submit to God, we resist the devil, and then third, we draw near to God. Here, here's what I've found in my own life from the time I was a teenager till, till this day. If I resist the devil and resist temptation, he will flee from me. But if I don't get out of the situation, it won't be long before I'm tempted again. Right? 
So if, if, if my grandma or if Miss Lunell says, don't touch that piano, right? And, and I stand right here with the urge to touch the piano. If I resist the urge, the urge will go away momentarily. But if I stand here next to this piano, it's going to keep coming back, right? But if I will draw near to God and get away from that which is not supposed to be in my life, then it says he will then draw near to me, right? So if I'm, if I'm struggling because something's on TV that ought not be there, if I will avert my eyes, that's going to help. But if I don't change the channel, we've still got a problem, Amen i got to resist the devil, and he will flee from me. But then i got to draw near to God. i got to pray, God, help me to overcome this temptation. Lord, help me to get out of this. Help me to avoid this. Help me to run away from this. Right? So how do we draw near to God? Well, we draw near to God through prayer, through his word, and sometimes often forgot through his body, the church. This is one way we draw near to God. We, we, we do life together as a church body. There's accountability there. There's relationship there. We are the body of Christ. If we're hanging out and drawing near with one another, guess what? We're drawing near to God. So we pray. We read the word. We spend time together. And it says that if we will draw near to God, He will draw near to us. He'll draw near to us. Again, the marital relationship is such a great analogy. If I show affection and love to my spouse, she's going to be way more likely to show affection and love back to me. If I draw near to her, she's going to draw near to me. But if I'm cold and distant, I will get cold and distance. Right? And the same is true for her. If she's affectionate and loving towards me, I'm going to be affectionate and loving towards her. And what I've found is it don't matter what the day has brought. If she's kind, affectionate, and loving towards me when I walk in the door, all that stuff's gone. And I'm going to be affectionate and loving towards her. Right? And Scripture says, if we will draw near to him, then he will draw near to us. Fourth, confess your sin. Notice what it says. Look at me in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You say, wait a minute. I... I've already drawn near to God. I've already submitted to his authority. I've resisted the devil. The sin should be done with, right? Well, notice what he says in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, purify your heart. Why? Because we're still sinners, we're still double-minded. That means that we have a mind for Christ, but we still have a mind for the world. It means that we experience what Paul experiences in Romans seven twenty-one through 24. Again, referenced earlier, Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Therefore, we will sin even as believers. And that is why it is so important that we confess our sins because when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul says there is a war raging inside of me. 
And although I have a desire in my heart and in my mind to do what God has called me and led me to do, I find that with my body is constantly leading me to do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Paul says, what's wrong with me? Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? The great news is the next verse says, thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can deliver us? Jesus can. Amen. And so we confess our sins knowing that he will purify our hearts and cleanse our hands. How do we clean our hands? How do we purify our hearts? We confess our sins. And then fifth, hate and mourn your sin. Notice what it says in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's what, here's what James says here that I think is really, really important that I think oftentimes we forget. We ought to hate our sin. The sin that we've committed, the sins that we struggle with ought to break our hearts. We ought to mourn. We ought to weep. Our laughter should turn to gloom, our joy to sorrow. In other words, we ought not brag about past sin, right? We ought not, we ought not make past sin seem like that's the good old days or the glory days of our life. We ought to mourn it. We ought to be heartbroken over it, right? Sin's a big deal. It separates us from God. And even if we've put our faith in Christ and our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, we still ought to mourn our sin, We ought to be sorrowful. We ought to be frustrated with the struggle. Couldn't you hear it in Paul's voice? Oh, wretched man that I am. He hated his sin. It disgusted him. It frustrated him. It angered him. How can I escape this? We ought to mourn our sin. But in mourning our sin, we also have to remember the great news of verse 6. He gives more grace. We have to remember what Paul said in response to chapter 7 in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the reality is, if we mourn our sin, we will automatically feel condemned. And Paul and James want you to remember, you're not condemned any longer. As a matter of fact, what James wants is he wants you to mourn your sin so that you can remember and praise God for his grace. And when I begin to stack up my sins, it gets really ugly really fast. But when I remember that he gives more grace, then it causes me to want to say, "Woo! praise God. Amen? Praise God. Because, man, I need more grace. I need more grace in my life. And so, finally, James says, humble yourself before the Lord. In other words, acknowledge who you are apart from Christ. Acknowledge your great need for Christ. And then notice what it says in verse 10. And he will exalt you. You want to talk about the great exaltation we receive? We go from sinners to children of God. Is that high enough for you? Doesn't get any better than that, amen? Amen. It's the great transformation where when we humble ourselves before the Lord, acknowledging our need for him, professing our faith in him, then he exalts us to his very own children. So what do we do in response 
to this? Well, first of all, we've got to make sure that we truly have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You see, the reality is James is writing to the church, but within any and every church, there will always be one or two or more that have yet to profess faith in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, and and you find that you're not struggling with the wisdom of the world, you've just given full into it. You're not struggling to live for Christ because the reality is you're not concerned with living for Christ. And this morning you realize the reason is because you've never truly given your life to Jesus. You've never surrendered to him. You believe in him. You acknowledge he's, he exists or you wouldn't be here. But you're just never really committed your life to following Christ. You've, you've never submitted to God. You, you've allowed God to have some input from time to time. You've allowed God's word to dictate some things. But deep down, you're still the authority of your life. You're doing what you want, when you want. And you only allow God to have his way when his way happens to be your way. Well, that's you this morning. I want you to understand that's not genuine salvation. You haven't really submitted to the Lord at all. You've made the Lord submit to you. And so if you're here this morning and you've never truly committed your life and submitted your life to Christ, and I want you to know that God loves you in spite of your sin. And in the same way that God has forgiven me, God has forgiven you, or he's made forgiveness available for you. And so if you're here this morning and you feel God calling you unto salvation, then I would encourage you to give your heart and life to Christ. Just a few moments, we're going to stand to sing the hymn of invitation and, and you may want to come and respond then or it may be that you've got questions or you've got more concerns and you want to talk to me after church, that's fine. But I just want to encourage you, if you feel God calling you into a relationship with him, calling you to submit your life to him, then don't leave here today confused. Don't leave here today convicted. Leave here today experiencing his great grace by trusting in him as Lord and Savior. Believers, if you have experienced the great grace of God, the reality is the war still wages on. And you're still struggling, you're still fighting. I want to remind you that God keeps giving more grace. So what do we do in response to his great grace? We submit to him as the authority of our life. We resist the devil. We draw near to God. We confess our sins. We hate and mourn our sin, and then we humble ourselves before the Lord, acknowledging that we still need God every day and every moment of our lives. Amen? And then we do our best to live our lives for the glory of God, following Him wherever He leads. Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me encourage you. If you're here today and you feel God calling you to himself, do not leave here today until you get right with the Lord. If God's calling you, then God loves you. If God's calling you, then he's made a way for your salvation. If God's calling you, then he's revealing the truth to you so that you can trust him and so that your sins can be forgiven and you can be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin, saved from death, saved from eternity, separated from God.
Again, if you're here this morning and you feel God speaking, I'll be down here as we stand, as we sing. You can come and you can talk to me here. You got more questions? You want to you talk longer? Come find me after service. But do not leave until you've said yes to the Lord. Believers, are you living more like a friend of God or more like a friend of the world? Reality is we struggle. It may be that this morning the Lord's brought you here to hear this message because you've been living more like a friend of this world than a friend of God. You're a believer. You've trusted Christ. You're just struggling. This altar is open. You can come. You can pray. You can confess. I'll be happy to pray with you. But you come as the Lord leads. And for the rest, maybe we haven't been struggling. But guess what? This week, we might. So let's recommit ourselves to following God, to being a friend of God and rejecting the wisdom of this world. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for your great grace. We thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would have your will and your way in us now. Lord, we love you. We submit to you. We, we, we confess our sin before you, even as believers. And we thank you for your great grace. Lead God and direct us now during this invitation. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.